0: These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray one more time. Oh, Father, we pray that you would open up this infinitely deep passage we just read. And feed us according as we have need. You know where we are. You know the struggles. You know what lies ahead this week, next month, next year. So we pray, Lord, you do your wonderful and mysterious work of breaking the bread of life to every one of your sheep in a unique way. We pray you'd feed souls and build lives that you may get glory. Help us to learn what we can through this church at Ephesus from a different perspective this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of these days, I'd like to preach through all of these churches. In fact, just keep going through the book of Revelation. It's a fantastic book. Of course, as a pastor, there's a lot of books you want to go through. Sometimes you feel like you'll die long before you get to them, but we'll see. We want to try to go where the Lord would have us walk. If you're familiar with the passage, you know that Revelation 2 and 3 is the uh, record of seven letters that Christ wrote to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor in the first century. And uh, basically, as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, that of course is Paul's letter to this church in Asia Minor. And if you mentally have this timeline, we're fast forwarding roughly 30 years, maybe a little more 32, 33 years, uh, but roughly three decades. After Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus that we were going through on Sunday mornings, about 30 years after that, uh, John pens this word from Christ to the same church. And it's an interesting study to see what can happen over a 30-year period. Um, uh, I'm not going to get real into this, but I just want to point out, uh, by the way, I do not believe that these seven churches in Revelation are seven church ages. Uh, If you know what I mean, you've uh, maybe read on that. And there are historical parallels. Uh, You can say, okay, yeah, there there are certain parallels in these ages, but uh, what they are is seven local assemblies, seven churches that actually existed all of which had characteristics superintended by God for our instruction even in this late hour. And keep in mind, what was said to all of these churches is snapshots at a particular time. Now, we don't know what happened to most of these after the fact. They may have improved, some of them. Some of them obviously got worse and eventually they weren't there anymore. But we don't know how all that happened. But these were snapshots in the life of of actual local churches like the one that we're sitting in this morning. And in the life of most churches, uh, various aspects of these seven assemblies are going to be manifested at any given time. That's going to be true corporately. That's going to be true of us as individuals. There's very likely people here that are manifestations of different characteristics uh, mentioned in these churches. And so the reason I mention that, though, is I want to ban our minds from trying to find which church exactly we parallel. Because I don't think we're going to find an exact parallel. Uh, There's applications from all of them. In fact, if you pay attention to the precise terminology, in every case, he says, the Spirit is saying this unto the churches, plural, plural. Every message was written to that church, but yet is applicable to every New Testament assembly uh, to gain what they can. Sometimes I think it's unfortunate when you say, well, there's seven ages, is everybody will tend to ignore the rest. Well, we're here. Uh, But the rest have uh, much to say to us, too. Now, you mean that Christ intends for us to learn lessons from the ways that other churches go? For good or bad? The answer is yes, he does. So, of course, his first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Now, history of Ephesus, I'm just going to touch on it. We did go through it fairly recently, but just as a reminder, it was the principal city of Asia Minor, uh, perhaps even the principal city of the entire eastern section of the Roman Empire, probably second in, in influence and wealth, only to Rome. It had been founded roughly 2,500 years earlier and was one of the greatest cities of the world. Pleasant climate, thriving seaports. It was the place where the emperors would go for vacation. And uh, perhaps you recall in Paul's second missionary journey, he wanted to go there. The Holy Spirit said no. He shut the door. And it was later on in Paul's second journey, he got to stop through in Acts 18. The door began to open. Then his third missionary journey in Acts 19... The door opened fully, and Paul sort of set up shop there and began preaching for quite some time. And it wasn't without opposition. Remember the whole issue with Greatest Diana of the Ephesians? There was a flourishing idol-making business, and people were very, very entrenched in their idolatry. And uh, the glorious gospel takes root, and a church is formed. And uh, they become sound-minded, solid, mature Christian people. If you read through the book of Ephesians, you see that he's not talking to imbeciles. He's writing to a group of people that could understand very deep things. And uh, I think to appreciate that, you have to remember these people started on a completely blank slate. They knew zero about the God of the Bible. They didn't have even an Old Testament background. They knew nothing. And, uh, of course, Paul uh, did quite a work there through the Holy Spirit. This was probably the high watermark for Paul's entire ministry. He considered Ephesus his great ministry, and he stayed there longer than any other place. There was a tremendous success of the gospel. And if you think of the chain of ministers they had there, Paul was there for quite a while. Apollos was there. Timothy ministered there. And eventually, the apostle John died there. So unquestionably, this would have been considered the leading church out of this group, the most influential. Personally, I think that's why they're mentioned first. But it's an interesting study. What would Christ have to say to a church like that roughly three decades after the epistle to the Ephesians was written? Now in Christ's letters to these churches, you see a same general pattern repeated. Uh, Each one begins with a description of himself, and all seven of them are different. This is another illustration of why it's important when you read through Bible passages, ask the question, why? Why is this here? Who is this for? What is this about? What does his description of himself uh, have to do with me? Every name of God, of course, through the scriptures, among other things, is like a healing balm for the specific ailments of your soul. To those in need of victory, he is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. To those in need of provision, he is who we talked about in Sunday school, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. If you're rocked by a turbulent world or circumstances, he is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. If you're crushed under the weight of sin, unable to meet God's righteous demands... He is Jehovah, said Cainu, the Lord our righteousness. How about Christ? What is Christ to those who are lost? He's the way. To those who are confused, He's the truth. To those who are dead in sins, He is the life. In Revelation 2 and 3, there's always a correspondence between the needs of the church and the description of Christ Himself. And when you and I are put in some of these conditions, these are often the names we need to meditate upon. Usually, there's not a spiritual problem in the universe that a clearer view of Christ can't solve. So, he gives a name of himself, and then he says, I know thy works in each case. There's multiple Greek words for the word know, it's translated know in English. There's gnosko, which is a progress in knowledge. This one, in each case, is the word "oida." It's a, it's a perfect tense with the present meaning. It means a, a perfect fullness of knowledge." That shouldn't be surprising, considering he's omniscient. But what he's saying is, I'm not merely looking down from heaven as a spectator, like I'm watching some big football game. I have full, complete, intimate knowledge. Your life. I know the character of what you do, the eternal value, the motivations, the difficulties, whether or not you're walking the path I've ordained for you or trying to be somebody else, etc. And I wonder why did Christ find it necessary to repeat this simple phrase all seven times? I mean, you read through this, this is written to the churches. Why would we need to hear that seven times in a row? Well, apparently it's vital to remember, and we're prone to forget. I mean, think if we wake up each day and just think on that phrase. Jesus saying, I know thy works. What will that do to justifying and bargaining and against sin, compromising? That would free us from slavery to men's opinions and cause us a right kind of self-examination to maintain fellowship. It would keep us from drawing attention to the good that we think we're doing. Think about this. If you're convinced God sees all the good, what need is there to alert others at the good that you're doing? Does it really matter if nobody ever sees it? Does it matter? Does it matter if we spend our days in obscurity as long as we're faithful to the Lord? And you see, that's one of the glorious things about Whitfield I mentioned. Oh, the world's forgotten him. The world just passes by. They could care less. <laughs> the Lord knows different. In fact, uh, what he says there, it is, by the way, Whitfield would, would cringe if he saw the way that people came to look at his crypt. He did not want that. What it says, he said, basically, he said, uh, I'm, I'm content to wait for the day of judgment to vindicate what sort of person I was. He said, here's what I want on my epitaph here lies GW, the final day will determine what sort of man he was. Can you say that? The final day will determine it. Secondary to that, who cares what other people think so long as you're walking with the Lord? It would encourage us that he never forgets. I mean, there's probably wonderful works you have done. You may not think they're wonderful. You wouldn't say they were, but they are in God's sight. You've forgotten them. You don't remember them. Guess who does? Every single one he knows. So he says a name for himself, I know thy works, and then he gives a commendation if there is one, and there's none for Laodicea. Now Christ, of course, shows he's looking for the good. He sees that, and he always mentions that first when he can. But he's not a flatterer. But he does see the good. He does see us in right perspective. Haven't you ever felt like God must just see all bad when he looks at me? No, not true. Are you a work in progress? Sure. Even very weak in faith, he knows. But he still sees the good. And then he gives correction five out of seven of the times, which is blunt and straightforward and non-negotiable. And these churches aren't just passively told, hey, you might want to fix a thing or two. They're told authoritatively to repent and to aggressively address their deeds or suffer whatever consequences had to come. And then he ends with the promise to those that overcome. And all seven promises are different. Again, I want to ask the question, what's your reaction when you hear that? Something promised to the overcomer. Is it I sure hope I'm one of those? Or is it in Christ? I am one of those. That's the intent of passages like that, for us to take hold of it and say, yes, that's for me if I'm in Christ. I want to point this out before we move on. There's three thoughts from Christ here that really run contrary to the pop culture Jesus that's so prevalent today. And what these things, among other things, do is show us how much the spirit of the present age has taken root in the minds of Christendom. Number one, we see this in verse two Jesus Christ is pleased when a church cannot bear them which are evil and is able to test, reject, and expose false teachers. Christ tells this church, Good job. For doing that. It's not a mark of division or hate or legalism, and yes, it can be done wrong. I don't mean that. But he's saying a sound church ought to be able ought to realize error will come in, wolves and sheep's clothing will come, and Satan's workers transforming themselves into angels of light, and he's telling this church, good job, recognizing that and dealing with it. Number two. There are lifestyles and doctrines or teachings that arise from within churches, even good churches, that Christ would say he positively hates. In fact, he uses that word twice in verse 6 and 15. We'll talk about the doctrine of Nicolaitines in a minute. But he says, there's these teachings which I hate, and you also hate it. Good job. Because... That ruins lives. I've used the illustration before of like a cancer or some hideous illness. We can't really love somebody without hating what would destroy them. False teaching destroys. Thirdly, it is Christ ultimately that removes the church out of its place. He doesn't need it to just close its doors. The day can come where he can say. Now. They could still have a building. And a thousand people showing up every Sunday. But from Christ's vantage point. It can get to a point where he will say. That's not my church. Anymore. That can happen. Well, notice the description of himself here in verse one. "These things saith he, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks." Now think of the ways Christ could give description of himself. Uh, he could talk about his character. Uh, he could talk about his actions. He could talk about his attributes. He could talk about his accomplishments, primarily what happened at Calvary in the empty tomb. But here, the description he gives is based on location. He describes himself as being in very close physical proximity with ministers and the churches themselves. Now, why is that? Well it correlates with the nature of the correction that's about to come in the next verses. This church was actually in danger of forgetting the nearness of the one who they were supposedly laboring for. Now, I don't want to get too into detail in this particular note. I have to ask the question, though, who are these angels and these stars? They're the same. The stars are the, the angels to the seven churches. And I've wrestled with that sometime in the past. There's two primary opinions on that, that they're actually angels or that they are pastors, shepherds of local assemblies. I'll be honest with you. I tend to shy away of that naturally just because sometimes that can be abused. But I do think the plain sense of the verses bears that out. Uh, the word angel means messenger. It's a, it's a generic word. It can speak to a human or an angelic being. Uh, but it would be strange indeed if Christ was dictating a letter to have a human being named John write to then give to an angelic being to carry to Ephesus to then hand back to human beings that were in Ephesus. I don't think that's what's happening. Besides that, why would he need to talk about his nearness to the angels? We all know he is. What he's saying is the ministers are clenched in his fist. Can I tell you from my vantage point what a precious encouragement that's been sometimes? It's not just true of me. Read John 10. Where is every Christian? In the hand of Christ, in the hand of God. And we corporately are a candle in Christ's lampstand. We have no light that's ultimately our own. Now, what's some implications of that? First of all, it implies his jealous protection. You realize Jesus Christ is jealous over this church? And over any legitimate New Testament church that's out there? Yesterday, the Lord checked my speech on that. I was thinking of an assembly, a church I was a part of years and years ago, and I was thinking through some things. And the Lord used this to rebuke me Be careful. That's my church, my bride. Doesn't mean you can't deal with error, but be careful assuming just because there's some issues that they're not precious to God anymore. You know how people can be, sometimes it can be very cruel. And sometimes people have said cruel things about me or about this church, and some of that gets back to me. and It's bothersome, but let me tell you this, the more I go in my Christian life, the more I'm learning to feel sorry for them. Let's say you're walking through town tomorrow. You're behind this guy, he's 6 foot 8 and he's built like a refrigerator. A guy could straighten a horseshoe with his bare hands. And uh, here's his wife sort of meandering through the shops. And you see this stranger come up and just slap the guy's wife. Now for a split second you might think, well that was uncalled for. Why doesn't somebody do something? Then you see that husband look at that guy like a chicken looking at a june bug. And now you feel sorry for that person. Because he messed with the wrong bride. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is jealous over his people and his church. It also shows that we're instruments, nothing more, nothing less. What do you do with a candle? You light it and you set it where it goes. That's what we are. We've been given light. And we've been stuck where Christ wants us. I we'll shed light where he wants us to. Here's what else this shows. He's always among us. Who's the real audience here this morning? I mean, you read this, this picture of Jesus here uh, and back at the end of the last chapter. And you see it through the eye of faith this morning? The Lord Jesus walking. Through here. Sifting, loving, searching, full of compassion, full of jealousy. He is the audience. Ultimately. Look at their commendation. What a list. Verses two and three, and then verse six. He says, I know your labor. He mentions that twice, and then the word born. So really three times. And by by the way, that word means to feel fatigue. He says, I know you've actually been physically at times worn out in serving me. And that's not a bad thing. I like what Moody said, I'm weary in the work, but I'm not weary of the work. Sometimes I wonder why our generation as a whole has this idea. I can labor and toil to do all my pleasures and at my job and everything else. But when it comes to the Lord's work, that shouldn't require any effort at all. Says who? He told them, I know your labor. He says, I know your patience. And he mentions that twice. Their cheerful, hopeful endurance to stay under divinely given affliction. And patience grows primarily through trial. And just like lifting weights is the only thing that's going to build muscle. How many of you know no pill is going to build muscle? There has to be resistance that you lift through. And for patience to grow, there has to be a flexing of the spiritual muscles that leads to the strength of patience. So he commends them for the labor, the effort they put in, their ability to go through trials and to keep on for their purity. Uh, They couldn't bear them which were evil. They were gracious yet firm. And then for their discernment, verse 6, they rejected the Nicolaitines. There's a lot of discussion on that. I don't know that anybody can say dogmatically what that was, but the idea of Nicolaitines is conquer the laity. And uh, many many scholars would say, I I would tend to agree with them, it's the idea of a hierarchy forming in churches. And, And then you get this system of this guy being over this guy being over this guy and it becomes this sacral society of which many have formed and apparently this was happening already in the first century and this church recognized that as a very bad trajectory that we're to be an autonomous local assembly not dominated by outside forces always telling us what to do that by the way is why we would say we're not part of a convention i'm not being unkind but that would be the reason why we don't have a headquarters across the country saying this is what you're going to do about a building and this is what you're going to do about a pastor. These are things that a local church decides. That's why we hold to autonomy of local churches or why we have the name Independent uh, to some degree in our name. Now, so Jesus says you've labored hard. You have great patience in trial. You're very concerned with purity and you guys are very discerning. What a list. I mean, is anybody here that, that wouldn't love to hear Christ say that about you? I would. It seems to be a well-rounded approval, very good things. But tragically, it seems as we go forward, in many respects, it's kind of like if you had a wheel. And uh, you had, you know, the, the old wooden wheels and they were covered with with, with iron on them. And you had a perfect, flawless, solid wheel. And then you had all these beautiful spokes in the middle. But you're missing a hub. My wheel's going to go for a while. But what's going to happen? Ultimately, those, those spokes aren't resting on any solid support. The whole thing's got to fly apart. Look at the rebuke in verse 4. After all this commendation, nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Now the the word first is not numerical, but preeminent. He's saying you lost your primary affection. Christ went from preeminent To just being prominent. Now I don't know, but I have to wonder how that news was taken. You have to remember, this is a letter that was written, that was opened up at one of these church meetings. And read. And imagine being that local church and you hear all these commendations and maybe some are thinking, Amen, Amen, Amen. Huh? Huh? Was it surprise? Was it agreement? Was it, oh, that 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 makes sense? I'm not sure. But the Lord doesn't mention this in fury. It's like he's pleading with them in grief. Isn't it interesting the question the Lord asked Peter after he failed? And Peter denies him. The Lord comes to him, he doesn't say, Peter. You're gonna do better next time? Peter probably would have said, Yeah, yeah, I think so. He didn't say, Peter, what all are you gonna do for me? He said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Is your affection for me greater than anybody or anything else? Now, Peter had a hard time answering that one. did he, he use a totally different word. Do you love me, agape? I love you, phileo, brotherly. He knew his lack. Now, that question is really only a sharp dagger to a certain classification of persons. It's not to the indifferent. The indifferent person, that's not going to bother him. A religious pretender, not going to bother him. But those who have had some measure of nearness to Christ in the past and have a general life direction of wanting to please Him, that question can become almost haunting, its application. I mean, think of these people, what they'd gone through, uh, where they'd come out of, what they'd done, uh, the train of ministers that had come through. I suppose they could have gotten angry and said, well, don't you know who we are and who we've had? Why, look at our ministerial wall. We've had Reverend so-and-so and Dr. so-and-so. And Here's what's interesting too. John was still alive. John, the apostle of love, who laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. John ministered there. He was exiled to Patmos, and eventually he went back in leadership to that church And while John was still alive, the Lord told the very church he was ministering to, you've left your first love. How does that happen? It can be blatant disobedience, but I don't think that was likely here. And yes, the more we grow, there's going to be a greater awareness of our own vileness, but... That's where we need a greater corresponding understanding of what he has made us in Christ. I guarantee you, the longer you walk with God, the lower view you're going to have of yourself. But can I tell you this? That doesn't mean God's having a lower view of you. Positionally, you're just as in Christ as you've always been. Nothing surprises him. It can happen through ignoring the so-called basics a little by little decisions chained in a row and the conscience begins to harden. Or how about sustained busyness? Always having to go and do in this growing list of spiritual chores. And often it's the slow, imperceptible changes. It's a, it's a drift. And I don't think an Ephesus is something that happened quickly. Something that all of a sudden they turned around and said, what, what exactly happened There's a danger in, in doctrinally sound churches of setting up habits and standards and all these good things. But all of a sudden those things which are the scaffolding become the building. And all of a sudden we don't do that out of love for Christ, we do that because we do that. And it's what we've done and it's what we're going to do and why? It's good to ask why sometimes. I mean, look at your own spiritual timeline for a minute. Let's say, let's say you've been saved for a while. Draw a timeline in your head. When I came to Christ? Today. Where is the high watermark of that timeline? Is it Today? When I say high watermark, I'm talking about your zeal and love for the Lord, your service to other people, your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Was the high watermark left back there somewhere? And if so, we need to ask ourselves the question, why and where? The cure really is blessedly simple. And by the way, the Lord, why does he point things like this out? I guarantee you there were people at Ephesus that felt like a dagger. There were people sitting there who probably thought, it's going to take me days to recover from what I just heard. But the Lord doesn't point that out to do this. When the Lord points out problems, he's opening the doorway and he's saying, enter here. And you know what you find when you enter here? He's already there seated at the table waiting. So this isn't a how dare you text. This is a draw near to me text. (laughs) He loves you with an everlasting love that can't fluctuate. What's the cure? Look at verse 5. Remember therefore. Okay, remember therefore because of this. He's saying, all right, since this is the case, what do you do? And really there's three verbs given here. Number one, what needs to be done? Remember therefore. Therefore. We know what remember means. I probably don't need to define it. It means to recollect, rehearse. It's very similar, actually, to the word meditate. It's not just in one, in one ear and out the other, but it's to, it's to revolve around in the mind, to sort of chew the cud. He's saying, think about this. It's interesting. That same Greek word is used 21 times in the New Testament, and it's never used in a general sense. You know, people today will use that a blue just believe. and they'll oftentimes say just believe without any kind of object. That's not faith. Somebody says just remember. What are you going to remember? What? Well, just remember. The Bible doesn't do that. Every time it's used, you can trace it through the New Testament. Every case is referring to a specific truth or person or event or place, and it's a deliberate mental exercise of calling certain things to mind and intensely focusing on them until change is produced. Let me give you some examples. How else is remember used? Hebrews 13.7, speaking of treatment of church leadership, remember them which have the rule over you. The same word. Colossians 4.18, Paul says, remember my bonds. Don't forget the fact I'm here. How about Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife. What a warning that was against immorality. Hebrews 11.15, it's used in a negative sense, actually. It's talking about the Old Testament saints. And he says, truly, if they had been mindful, that's the same word. If they had been mindful or remembered or meditated on that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned, but now they seek, they desire a better country. So he's saying if those people had sit and ruminated upon where they came from over and over and over, they would have been looking for a reason to go back. But he's saying, oh, no, no. They were convinced that the way is forward. I'm not going back to that what I used to be in my sin. Now, what's to what's to be remembered in this admonition? Remember what? Remember from whence thou art fallen. If your spiritual high water mark was in the past, he's saying, remember where you used to be. Go back to where the train fell off the tracks if necessary. Ask yourself the question, I was progressing, why am I now digressing? And that kind of remembrance, what's it going to do? It's going to produce grief, yes, and a sense of loss, but a sense of longing and and hopefully a determination to do something about it. Remember, what's the next R word? Repeat or repent. That's a change of mind that leads to a a change of action. Determined by a definite act of the will to acknowledge the lukewarmness and say along with the prodigal, I will arise and go to my father and then go. Remember, repent. What's the third? Do the first works or we could say repeat. You know, in fact, we talked about this in the Valentine's banquet last year. It was tremendous picture of marriage here also, by the way. You take a newlywed couple and for the most part, they just sort of maintain the flame because it comes natural. And they don't even realize they're doing the things that are keeping their marriage alive. They show care and concern for each other. They put each other's needs above their own. They communicate their affection for each other. They, they plan their lives around each other's needs and they deliberately spend time together. And then they do all these things that they don't even realize are actually keeping things passionate And then children come and careers change and bodies change. And all of a sudden, those things aren't done quite as naturally. Next thing you know, this person's coming and saying, Well, I don't think we ever loved each other. You see, the problem is you stopped doing the first works, you stopped investing deliberately in the relationship. It takes wood to keep a fire burning and you stop putting wood on the fire and now you're wondering why it's dying. That same application is in our spiritual life. When we first come to Christ, a lot of the things we do to keep ourselves passionate with him, the newness of it keeps it going. But over time, it starts to cool. And over time, the things you, the priorities you wouldn't have had, you begin to have again. And the decisions you make in reference to time in the scriptures and different things, all of a sudden, doesn't have the same priority. So he's saying go back to doing what it took to maintain your own spiritual heats. There's so many applications to that. We could probably go on all day. I'll leave you to make them to yourself. Can this happen? Can this happen to pastors? Yes, it absolutely can. Trust me, I read a text like this and I'm not excited to go tell it to everyone else. I sit and I say, oh God, where am I? Hmm? Oh, I can show up here and preach. Make application. How's my love for him? He closes the warning in a promise. Look at the warning, verse five. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, that does not mean losing salvation. I think we all probably know that already, but I'll just say it. This is to a corporate assembly that is talking to a group. He's not saying, I'm going to remove you and kick you and in, into hell. He's saying, I'm going to remove your place of effectiveness. I'm going to take you from being somewhere where I was there walking among you and working among you and, and, and speaking to lives and changing them among you. And I'm going to take you out of that place. Of course, Paul individually said he doesn't want to preach unto others and become a castaway. Same idea. Not losing salvation, but saying, I don't want to be shelved in the Lord's service. I don't want to preach all this good to others. And Paul even had a fear that he himself could become so hardened in the work of the ministry as to be set aside and not be able to be used very much for God. But then there's a promise. By the way, let me say this. First of all, even the very best churches, I'm talking about churches that are founded by apostles, have the silver-tongued Apollos coming through, and the Apostle John as their pastor in exile, writing books of the Bible. Even churches like that are only a couple decades from total collapse at any given time if they let it happen. Let me point this out too. Past does not guarantee the future. That's true both ways. An illustrious past in a church does not guarantee an illustrious future. Let's look at the other side of that though. A checkered past does not guarantee a checkered future. I'll speak candidly for a minute. You guys know what I'm saying. There are churches that start and take off like a rocket ship. I know of one up in the northern part of the state. They've been around 72 years. They're on their second pastor. That hasn't been the history here. Struggles of the past do not have to define the future. The gospel's the same. Christ is the same. His promises are the same. His character is the same. The needs of this world are the same. And the Holy Spirit is the same. So it's not so much stare back to find out what we're going to become, but stare at Christ to find out what we can become. But look at the promise. He says to the overcomer. And by the way, in the Christian life, again, being precedes doing. Do you know that an overcomer is not something, if you're thinking biblically, it's not something you're trying to be, but it's something you understand you already are in Christ. i want to cross-reference, one of the best, probably the cross-reference to that. In fact, let's just flip back, flip back two pages, back to the very end of 1 John. Well, two-ish pages, depending on your size of your print. 1 John 5, look at it, somebody reads that and says, wait a minute, am I going to overcome? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Who's the overcomers? Every single genuine child of god is an overcomer if you're sitting here this morning and you know christ you are an overcomer he's not saying become one he's saying live like what i've already made you a conquering mindset is very honoring to god what is there in this world that really has the power to dissuade a christian life nothing remember the end of romans 8 Oh, you can take my health, you can take my life, you can take my possessions, you can throw me to the lions, but I'll tell you this, you'll never separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What happens to the overcomers? It's interesting, the tree of life has disappeared all this time from the pages of Scripture, and now here it is again. Isn't that something? The Lord took it away so man wouldn't eat of it and live in his sin forever. And now here we have, in the final book of Scripture, he says, ah, a tree's going to be back. Only in that day, you'll never sin again, you can't. I will give to him to eat of the tree of life. The very tree that Adam and Eve were banned from. And he says, you're going to be in the presence of that tree for good. And that tree is in the midst of the paradise of God what does that do that makes our eyes look ahead right what is this world compared to the paradise of god oh the trees and natural beauty here are wonderful we were talking about in sunday school this morning the hand of god is astounding but what are the trees outside this door to be compared with the tree of life Hmm? can i tell you something the leaves of that tree are never going to fall off So I wonder, just by way of personal application, we don't know this dogmatically, but in a way the Lord's done this already. What if Christ penned a letter to this church? Or do you individually? What would it say? I see, our goal should be doctrinal soundness. Yes, we want to be mighty in the scriptures. We want to be Bereans like the sign says. Uh, We want to labor fervently, but not in place of, but because of a fervent love for Christ. I mean, when's the last time you opened the scriptures in the morning and said, Lord, I'm doing this as a love offering because I love you. Not because I have to. I I have the privilege of knowing you. Remember, repent, repeat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and patience with us. Lord, I know these words are cutting, but I pray in that you would give great encouragement and healing balm to us today. You don't ask these questions and say these things to leave us quivering on the ground. You want us near to you. Give us a greater vision, Lord God, of how precious every one of your children is to you individually. And how badly you want nearness to us. How badly you want to reveal to us your everlasting love and daily experience so that nothing can cloud our view of that. Help us to grow in our love for you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us. Amen.